So um, I am going to give a little more of an introduction to this podcast coming up than I normally do. Um, we're going to be talking with Brendan Walsh, who is the head pro at the Country Club, um, which um, uh, is going to be hosting the U.S. Open um, come June uh, this year. Uh, and um, uh, there's just so much history with the Country Club and its place in American golf. And we touch on a lot of it somewhat quickly through this podcast because there's just so much ground to cover um, that I thought it might be worth just giving a little more background than, um, you know, we could. I mean, friends and I could have talked for hours, um, but um, uh, so, uh, but with a 45-minute podcast, um, it struck me as we finished that there's probably a few items of background that might be helpful for people. So just to start off with, the Country Club um, formed in 1882, one of the original five founding uh, members of the USGA, uh, really a country club, um, much, much more than a golf club. Golf wasn't even there at the beginning. Um, horse racing was um, a big part of it from the start. Um, in fact, uh, the racetrack for the horse racing um, kind of ended up um, kind of intersecting with what ended up being the first and 18th holes. And um, uh, But um, uh, there's tennis courts, squash courts, skating, skeet shooting, curling, truly a country club. Um, and it's really a, a wonderful place if you ever have the good fortune to uh, play there or visit it. Um, it's just got this classic uh, New England um, clubhouse, uh, yellow clapboard-sided clubhouse, um, and um, just um, uh, beautiful um, to walk through. I remember, um, uh, you know, playing there in college, as, as I mentioned, was our home course, and walking into the locker room and seeing the portrait of Francis we met and um, just all the history there is just, it's just wonderful. Um, and it is really a classic New England course. Um, you know, there are a couple of holes with these rock outcroppings, um, notably the, um, uh, the 11th um, uh, on, on the main course, um, uh, nicknamed the Himalayas, um, one of the more famous holes there, just just beautiful topography. Um, and, you know, with all these other facilities there, I mean, as Brendan noted, I think it's, you know, 235 acres. It's a big piece of property, and it's just a wonderful um, rolling topography, um, uh, uh, which, um, of course, makes for a lot of tremendous golf holes. Um, so that's the country club. Um, we didn't talk a lot about all of the various tournaments there. Um, there have been a lot. Um, I, uh, a lot of major tournaments, USGA amateurs. Um, uh, we didn't get into the 63 U.S. Open. That was a significant one, um, you know, of, of Arnold Palmer. After winning the U.S. Open in 60, um, you know, in 62, 63, and 66, he lost um, three playoffs for the U.S. Open, um, and um, 60 was his only victory. And in 63, he lost to um, Jackie Cupid and Julie Boros, um, or, or I should say he lost to Julie Boros. The three of them were tied after 
72 holes. Um, and um, we had another, another playoff in the 88 U.S. Open. Curtis Strange won his first of his two U.S. Opens, beating Nick Faldo. Um, so we didn't um, we didn't really talk much about that. Uh, we mentioned the 2013 U.S. Amateur that was won by Matthew Fitzpatrick. Of course, 99 Ryder Cup um, is probably what people most remember about the country club, um, uh, the tremendous comeback by the U.S. Um, team, which we we did talk a little bit about. Um, but um, the other thing about the country club um, and um, you hear us talk a little bit about this, but it might be hard for folks to follow if they're not familiar with this. Um, so there's 27 holes at the country club. There's the main 18, and then there's an additional nine called the primrose. Um, and, um, uh, but for um, the championship course, um, and I think they started doing this at the 1957 U.S. Amateur, certainly did at the 63 U.S. Open, and we'll see it again this year is they create a composite course by skipping a few holes from the main course and borrowing a few holes from the primrose course. Um, uh, and um, uh, you'll hear um, a couple of times in the conversation, Brendan will refer to member 11 or member 12. So that would be like the 11th or 12th hole on the regular 18 and the numbering changes a little bit because they skip a few holes on the regular 18 and 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 substitute in a few holes from the primrose um and um i think it's a wonderful challenging course the regular 18 but um the way the usga puts in these composite holes or or holes uh, creates a composite course it is really challenging um and um uh, and adds quite a bit of length um, to the course as well. Um, so that's kind of just the nomenclature when you hear us refer to that. That that's why because they're flipping holes in and out of the of the rotation. And this year they actually changed the rotation a little bit. That they you know back in '88 they didn't um, go off the first tee and tenth tee. Uh, they do now, so they kind of reconfigured it a little bit um, uh, even further. Um, but anyways, that's, that's the composite course when you hear us, um, refer to the championship course. Um, and then the other thing, of course, um, uh, that we mentioned, and again, we didn't do a deep dive on the 1913 U.S. Open. Um, it's a pretty well-known story, but, um, uh, Francis, we met, um, of course, will always be associated with the country club because his victory in 1913 really is probably the most significant event in the history of American golf. Um, and, and Brendan did a wonderful job talking about the consequences of that victory. Um, we didn't go into the details of the tournament itself because it is very well known, but um, I heartily recommend Mark Frost's book called The Greatest Game Ever Played, which talks about how Francis we met um, defeated Harry Varden and Ted Ray, um, who were the two leading pros of both from, from, uh, from the UK, uh, two leading golf pros, uh, of, of that time. Um, and it was, and Francis we met was 20 years old and, you know, was a barely known, um, you know, had grown up across the street, uh, literally from the country club, his house still there, I think, 246 Clyde Street, 
right off the 17th hole and had uh, grown up caddying there. And, um, you know, uh, there's so many wonderful things in Mark Frost's book about it. I mean, one of the things I always got a kick out of is, um, you know, at age seven, he goes and sees Harry Varden hit balls at the Jordan Marsh department store in Boston. You know, by that time, Harry Varden was already, you know, well-established and, um, and, and yet, you know, a mere 13 years later, he's playing against Varden and Ted Ray and, and, and victorious. Um, uh, the other thing about uh, Francis we met that I, you know, going through Mark Frost's book and, getting ready to talk to Brendan about all this that I, I, I didn't really fully appreciate is what a just tremendous stellar re record he had throughout his career. I mean, it's, you know, certainly 1930 U.S. Open is, is, is super important, but um, um, I had known that he had won two U.S. Amateurs. I, I didn't realize they were so far apart, 1914 and 1931, so 17 years apart. Um, you may look at that and say, hmm, why? Well, you know, <laughs> you sort of think about what's in between those two years, the 20s. And, of course, we're talking about the 1920s and amateur golf. Um, we're talking about Bobby Jones. And sure enough, um, Francis, we met, ran into Bobby Jones twice in the semis uh, of the U.S. Amateur in 1926 and 1927 and lost those. Um, and But overall, he made the semifinals of the U.S. Amateur in his career seven times. That's quite something. Um, I think what else is quite something is that he played and or captained in 12 Walker Cups. Um, that's pretty darn amazing. Um, uh, played in um, 10 in a row. Um, and then uh, the last two of those 10, he was a playing captain. Um, two more non-playing captains. So that's really remarkable. Um, and so just a, a really a remarkable career. Um, one thing I'll just add uh, that uh, I, didn't, I didn't go into with Brendan, but um, uh, my dad, um, who would, who introduced me to the game, and he grew up caddying in in um, in Hartford, where he grew up, where I grew up. Um, so my dad was born in 1916, and I'll always remember he used to talk about how he had the chance to caddy for Francis We Met when Francis We Met. Um, was in Hartford. Um, he had a chance to caddy for him once. And um, so this would have been, you know, probably my dad was like 15, 16. So this would have been, Francis probably would have been close to 40. So he was a little older, but my dad told me that he couldn't believe how far he could hit the ball and how he had trouble clubbing him because he hit the ball so darn far. Um, I'll always remember that. Um, so, um, <laughs> kind of my connection um, with Francis we met through my dad. Um, but anyways, um, uh, the country club is um, just just rich history and Brendan knows it beautifully as you will quickly see um, and um, is a very impressive fellow. I mean it's I was impressed that he um, got the position there at such a young age. He's been there. Um, gosh, I think it's almost 25 years now. And, uh, but I think you'll see listening to him 
um, I'm, I'm sure you'll come across as impressed as, as I as I did uh, listening to him, and and it's easy to see why he made such a good impression on people and got the job at such a young age. And um, uh, anyways, I fun conversation upcoming. Uh, I really enjoyed it with Brendan Walsh. Um, so. Uh, I hope you don't uh, mind uh, having indulged me a little bit to give you a little more background. But as I said, I mean, we we could have talked for hours about a lot of this stuff. And um, Brendan was very generous with his time as it was. Um, but I wanted to at least give folks a little a little more background on um, the country club and Francis we met um, and, and the great history there. Um, so upcoming, uh, Brendan Walsh. Welcome to another edition of The Golf Guy, and uh, we have a very special guest that I'm very excited about today, uh, Brendan Walsh, who is the head pro at the Country Club in Brookline, um, the Country Club being one of, of course, the five original founding clubs of the USGA, um, a club I have a little bit of experience with just because that was our home course in college uh, 40 plus years ago for me. Uh, but Brendan, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Larry, thank you. It's great to uh, be on the phone with you and to do this podcast. We're very excited. And obviously, a lot of energy going on around here, Boston now with the championship. And uh, we're just about 100 days away. So it's uh, it's all starting. Construction's getting going. And uh, they're building some roads right now. And we'll start to see some of the corporate villages going up uh, beginning next week. So it's here alive and well, and it's going to be an exciting time, June 13th through 19th. No doubt about it. And we're all very much looking forward to it. And we'll, we'll um, get into so much of the history and of the course and, um, you know, all the great championships that have been there. A lot of folks haven't seen the course um, since probably the 99 Ryder Cup, which is one of many, you know, tremendous tournaments that were there. We'll, we'll never forget Ben Crenshaw's promise uh, the day before that they were going to come back, but, but we'll get to that. But maybe just to get things rolling, just to start uh, with you and kind of how you got started in the game. I, I understand that you kind of were born and raised in the Philadelphia area. Maybe you can just Talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you got started. And I know, of course, your dad was a fantastic golfer, but maybe talk, talk to us a little bit how you got started in the game. Thanks, Larry. Uh, my father, my greatest role model, he passed back in 2013 at 91, lived a great life and introduced us to golf at an early age. We were fortunate enough to play at the Philadelphia Country Club. And I have six brothers and eight sisters, and that was a big to-do to uh, get over there and be able to play some golf. The girls were all swimmers. The guys were golfers. And having a bunch of number 12. And so I'm at the bottom end. So I have a lot of older brothers. It was the thing to do. My father, after we get our yard work done, he'd take us over to Philadelphia country club. We'd play a few holes. If we had three whiffs in a row, we couldn't play to the next hole. So you learn how to make contact pretty quickly uh, as we went through and played all the sports growing up and had the opportunity to golf in the summers, never really took it too seriously till I got to college, ended up going to the college of Worcester in Ohio and uh, went to actually for basketball and was going to try to play golf and try to do two sports. And Bob Nye, who was a father figure away from home and his uh, son, Scott, as you know, is the director of golf over at Marion, a college right. teammate of mine and had an opportunity to uh, really get into golf and saw, saw some great improvements quickly. And so I uh, dropped basketball and stayed with golf and had just a, a great opportunity, uh, as you know, in this business to make this my career and so it's been wonderful. My first job was out on Nantucket Island. I worked with a, a great golf professional, recently retired Jim Fitzgerald, who gave me my first introduction to the business. 
And uh, we uh, had a great experience there over the summer. And then he uh, set me up with an opportunity in the wintertime at a place called Cypress Run. And then Jim uh, got me in touch with a fellow by the name of Bill Adams at the Ridgewood Country Club, which is a beautiful Tillinghast yeah, design yeah. right outside of uh, in New excuse me, right outside of New York City, about 20 minutes away and a great 27 holes. And then uh, I would do a few winters in Florida. I did Innisbrook one winter, worked there. And then I've got my first break as a head professional at the Patterson Club in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is a uh, beautiful Robert Trent Jones golf course built in the late 40s. It was originally established uh, for the General Electric executives. And they finally started to let some non-GE people in, in the 60s. They sold it to the members uh, late 60s, early 70s. It was kind of ironic that GE moved their headquarters to Fairfield right. in 1975, I think it was. So that was a great right. experience. Uh, they took a chance on a young 27-year-old uh, hot shot out of Philadelphia, and I was uh, blessed there to uh, have a great run. And then uh, when the country club job opened, I was extremely excited about that and was very fortunate to get the position started here in January of 1998. So been uh, fortunate, as you know, in this business. Uh, you uh, deal with a lot of different people and a lot of different bosses over the years, but I've been able to uh, manage and uh, things are going well here at the club and starting my 25th season. So very blessed. That's fantastic. I mean, just to pause on some of those stops. So those are some notable places. Ridgewood, you mentioned Tillinghast. Um, I'm trying to think what the years were. You may have, I mean, I remember the 1990 U.S. Senior Open, of course, with Nicholas and Trevino. And, um, you know, that I, I, I remember that like it was yesterday with Jack missed that putt, you know, mm -hmm. and um, on that hole. And, um, and, and Lee had sort of told everyone, you know, Jack was going to pick his head up. I mean, it, but anyways, that was probably, you were there probably then, right? Yeah, that's a great uh, event. That was my last year there in 1990. I uh, worked for this guy, Bill Adams, I mentioned, is a great mentor of mine. And we had the best time uh, with that event. And it came down to the wire and it was, looked like there was going to be a thunderstorm at the end of the right. day. We thought there was right. going to be a playoff. and. Uh, it was a great duel and the first two first year that they were eligible to play and to be right. able to have them come down to the wire was pretty exciting. So yeah, for sure, right? I mean, all the USGA history, we all you mentioned your your uh, uh, Scott and I at Marion, of course. You know, we all remember the rubber snake and that playoff in the U.S. Open, and then they have their first year of the U.S. Senior Open. So great memories. Um, and then yeah, as you say, go to the Patterson Club, and then. Wow. I mean, so impressive at age 34 to get a position like the country club. So let's just talk about maybe that when you started there. I mean, that's a, you know, such a famous, uh, is such a famous club. I mean, what was that like for you being so young um, to get a position like that? That was to have been, um, I, I just know if it was at my ship, I would, uh, I'd be a little intimidated, I suppose. But I mean, it, it's something that 34 to be there. What was it like being that young to be at a place like the country club? You know, I, I had a good run at Patterson. And, you know, as you start to find yourself in management and what have you, and I uh, started to, to, be a good manager of people and felt comfortable, got a lot out of my people and, uh, you know, commitment, loyalty, dedication and culture. And, and that's something the club was looking for. Uh, the longtime golf professional Don Callahan was here and then they um, gave an opportunity to a former, uh, one of his former assistants. And he was here for four or five years and just looking for a change. And, and I was fortunate enough to uh, get an interview and uh, one gentleman on the search committee still reminds me the only reason I got the job is because of my wife, Desiree, who's uh, 
very good people wise. And, uh, and we went up for the interview and he always kids me that uh, that's the only reason you got the job, but, uh, but coming in, it was very intimidating, big club, lots of members, yeah. 1300 people and 1300 members and 27 holes and a robust program. And, but you know, it's just fundamentals and I had the management skills already intact and you're just dealing with more people and, uh, and always had a lot of patience growing up in a family of 15. You need a lot of patience in this business and been blessed yeah, with that. So, uh, you know, the first couple of years, a lot of uh, fact finding, doing a lot of listening and just paying attention and where we could make changes, not a place where you're going to go in and make a lot of household changes right out of the right. box. But right. you know, there's some fundamentals right. and culture wise with staff. And I always remind people, you're only as good as your team. And the big thing was to get the team that I inherited and get them to buy in and, and to make sure they believed in what they were doing and, and understand the process. And and culture has been very important. You know, leadership defines culture and culture defines behavior. And me as the leader, I had to change the culture to make sure that everybody was on the same page and enjoying what they were doing. And that was the, the biggest impact that we made the first year. And then we started to change some programs and things of that nature. And, and within five years, you, you pick away a little bit each and every year and to try to get to where you are. And, um, and then you start to have all your own people there at that point. And, uh, you know, and we've been very blessed, as I said, and the club's been very supportive of our program and give us the resources to do it right. So uh, it's, I'm a big believer is uh, the whole team thing is I'm only as good as the people around me. And those people uh, have to communicate and really stress that home that we all need to be on the same page. And uh, for the most part, it's worked really well. Yeah. The, all great principles, great leadership principles generally, and certainly apply in a, in a position like um, the country club. So um We'll we'll get into some of the history, but I'm just sort of thinking chronologically. So you're there in '98, and you're only there a year, and you've got the Ryder Cup. Um, so uh, before we get into some of the history, just because that was so soon after you started, what was that like? I mean, that of course everyone, you know, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, you know, and I know it's 20 plus years ago, but you know, golf fans will remember, you know. Uh, being down 10-6 going into the last day and Crenshaw famously at the end of that press conference sort of wagging his finger and saying, I have a feeling about this and the tremendous cup, the comeback, the tremendous crowds. And of course, culminating um, with Justin's, you know, put all the way across the green, right across from Francis Wiemet's old house there on Clyde Street on 17. But so tell me what, so you're they're only there a year and this, you know, huge um, event descends on the country club. What was that like? Yeah, it was great. It was a whirlwind. There was a lot of uh, things were already in place by the time I got there. There's weekly meetings that are leading up to it, or I should say monthly and then uh, bi-monthly and then weekly. And you make sure you go through the all the processes. We had a lot of people that were on the committees that had experience with the 1988 U.S. Open and our manager, David Shag, uh, who had been here as well in 1988, has done a marvelous job in relations with the town. And as you know, when you have a tournament, it's not just the golf course, it's everything else that uh, comes to town with it. And uh, we have just a great group of people that were uh, part of that process. So I was a very small part in that as we led up to it and uh, PGA of America and working in a partnership with them and had some great people that, uh, we worked alongside. And again, it's uh, not just your club. It's not just your town. It, it's the region, um, the, the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth, and you know, to see what we were able to uh, 
create here, the energy level, and obviously the play and the drama that they went along with that it was spectacular. Crenshaw just loved this place. Uh, first time he was ever here was in 1968 for the U.S. Junior. So oh, and wow. it, okay. he tells the story. It's the first time he ever played golf outside the state of Texas, which I was surprised to wow. hear. Wow. He was a hotshot junior and he's on the script here for the 68 junior, but he just loved the place and all the times that he was coming up here prior and uh, you know, building up to the event. And we had the golf course one year out in September of 98, we had it set up like he wanted it. And he had a chance to come here and see what it was like. And uh, then we made a few adjustments based on to see what the conditions are be like. And uh, the players came in for a practice round. And we had uh, about a month beforehand and it's exciting. Uh, they came in as a team and uh, a couple guys came in prior. Tom Lehman came in in August uh, when he was at Hartford, he was on the fence of making the team and remember what an inspiration he was oh, sure. uh, during that. Yeah. And what a great captain Payne Stewart came in right after he yeah. won the open and played a practice round knowing that he was going to be on the team. And, uh, both just two complete gentlemen and uh, were great when they showed back up, remember a lot of the staff and, but the drama of the week, Crenshaw, he was a childhood idol of mine. So that was exciting to wow. have yeah. uh, him to be the captain and get to know him and you know, learn through that. But that famous line that he had to have fate about this. Uh, and then to start out with uh, the first match of the day with Lehman versus Westwood uh, and to start to get some points on the board and the excitement and the famous Davis to Val fist pump on 14. And right. Right. Davis loved going out there to uh, go ahead and root, uh, uh, Justin Leonard on who was struggling a little bit and he made a, a long putt on 15 that people don't talk about, which gave right. us some momentum and then leading that thing into 17 and, and the, the sportsmanship between Payne Stewart and Colin Montgomery and Monty took it on the chin that week. Uh, the fans here were a little rough uh, yeah. with him, but yeah. uh, it was uh, just, again, the excitement for me, my second year here to be part of that was an incredible experience. Yeah, it was an amazing, I mean, you, you, you totally, I mean, it's, it was an amazing event. I remember, you know, Johnny Miller was a little harsh on Justin on the telecast, which he got a lot of flack for, you know, because Justin was struggling a little bit and then of course makes those putts and um, yeah, you, you bring back a lot of the memories thinking about that, but yeah, that was a fantastic event. No doubt about it. Um, so um, let's maybe get into some of the rich history of the country club. Um, you know, of course, um, you know, the most, uh, I would argue the most important event in the history of American golf, um, uh, the 1913 U S open, um, which is just such a, it's such a rich story. And for people who, um, you know, haven't, um, you know, aware of it generally, but maybe not some of the details. I could hardly recommend Mark Frost's book uh, on the 1930 USO, which is really a fantastic read. Um, but um, maybe let's just talk a little, I know you know so much about the history, um, no doubt a lot more than I do, but let's talk about that and maybe why that was such an important event for American golf and, and, and kind of, you know, in the role, of course, Francis, we met being a caddy and, you know, Ted, Ted Ray, Harry Varden, you know, and sort of where Britain and America were in golf at that point in time and, and why it was such an important event. I appreciate that, Larry. Everybody knows the story about what happened here and, but the impact that it made. And when you think about a guy, Francis, we met, and you think of that happened today, he wins the U S open in 1913. And then he wins the U.S. Amateur at Aquanic in 1914. And he comes back in 1931 and wins the right. U.S. Amateur uh, at Beverly in Chicago, which you wouldn't hear of today. Uh, right. These people right. that are that good of a player and come back and they go. And 
and people don't realize this, he made it to the semifinals in the U.S. Amateur seven times. Right. It's, it's incredible. And he played in the Walker Cup team or captained it 12 times, which you just wouldn't see in today's day and age. Right. As they go, he was the first RNA, or first U.S. RNA captain, uh, which is pretty incredible in 1951. They named a caddy scholarship uh, named after him here in Massachusetts. It's called the Francis Met Caddy Scholarship. And they do a wonderful job with that, led by Colin McGuire and their board of directors. But people don't realize is the impact on the game that he had. It was a rich man's game that in the next 15 years, we went from 350,000 golfers in this country to over 2.1 million. And the number of courses, we went from 700 courses to 5,600 courses in that 15-year stretch. And a lot of these clubs now, we're starting to see they're celebrating their 100th anniversaries. And that's all because of the, the impact that we Mets win had. And again, a lot of people don't realize that impact of what the true numbers are. Uh, they all know the story of him uh, winning against these two greats. They moved the U.S. Open that year, 1913, to September because they wanted to have Rand Barton participate. Right. And Francis right. gets in. We all know the story. And at the last minute and how he was able to play. And but he became uh, there was a story in The New York Times on the front page about golf, which had never happened before with his win. And just some crazy things that happened that put the game of golf on the map in this country. And it just took off from there. Obviously, there's a little bit of a pause during the war. But uh, in Mark Frost's book in the match and you know, kind of going through that process, you know, he has the second book called The Grand Slam leading up into the thirties. And then uh, the match came out after that, but it's really neat to see a lot of these great courses that started that were established after we met Swin, now celebrating a hundred years uh, all throughout the, the major cities in the country. Yeah, for sure. Um, to- totally agree. And, and, you know, and it's funny because you mentioned Mark Frost's great book on the match, uh, which of course was the, uh, the, the Hogan Nelson Harvey Ward, Ken Venturi match at, at Cyprus. Um, and um, uh, if you don't think you could write a whole book about one match, you, you should, people should read that book. Cause it's a fan. Of course he intersperses with it, you know, some of the history and, and, you know, and kind of the, uh, just the circle of uh, things. I mean, Eddie Lowry, who of course, you know, is a significant figure um, with the USGA with, some of the unfortunate stuff that happened with Harvey Ward, but with, you know, sort of being a um, kind of sponsor of Harvey and Ken Venturi and, and subsequently Tony Lima um, was Francis. We met's caddy. Um, and there's sort of those great photos of that one great photo with Francis Walk that I'm sure people have seen with Francis walking with Eddie Lowry and Eddie was uh, not much bigger than the bag. Um, and, um, uh, but um uh, it's just, it's amazing. The connective tissue of the, of the game and the history dating back to that 1913 U S open, right? A lot of pressure for Francis to drop Eddie, the final round, right. right. He stuck with them and, and obviously it paid off for him. So it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, one other thing I, I, I ran across that, um, I'm sure you've seen is when, um, so some of these, uh, the 63 open of course was you know done in 63 because of the 50th anniversary and there's um, a wonderful video uh that folks can see on youtube of eddie lowry and francis we met talking at the 1963 us open and remember and if for folks you know who 
read Mark Frost's book, right? You know, remembering, you know, that first drive that only went 40 yards in the rough and, you know, and France, 50 years later, Francis and Mets talking about it like it was yesterday, right? It's, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you've seen that video. It's really neat to see I them have. talk. It's, it's very it's cool. Um, so yeah, a huge seismic event in the game. Um, and, um, and then we go forward um, to, um, uh, I guess the 63 U.S. Open, although there, I'm, I'm trying to think, I think it was in the late 50s, right? The, the U.S. Am, was there, there was another amateur term, right? Yeah. I remember there's a young Jack Nicklaus showed up, right? Correct. In the late 50s, right? You got it. So 1957, we had the amateur and it was the first time we played on a composite golf course. They were looking for something that was a little bit more robust than our, what we call as our main course. And we call our nine hole golf course, the Primrose. And so you may not know this, Larry, but, and I just learned this recently that I always thought the composite course in 57 is the one that we played for 63 and 88 and right. the amateur in 82 and things. And so, but I learned that they actually, the first trial run, they didn't plays holes one, two, or four, uh, that they actually started on the 10th hole. Okay. Worked their way out that way. And then. Once they got back to nine on the main golf course, they went over and played three and then worked wow. from there. But they found in 57, it still wasn't quite where they wanted to be. And so and they came back in 63, PJ Boatwright, uh, they wanted to establish something with a little bit more. And that's where they introduced uh, the not playing nine and 10 and 12 and had those holes on the primrose that were included. So, uh, so the routing will change for the first time since 1963 for our men's major championships for this year, where we will not play main number four, and we will add in the little par three, the 12th hole on the member course, which will be championship number 11. So we'll play one, two, three, and then go five, six, seven, eight, and then we'll play main number 14 and down primrose number nine, par 35, approximately about 3,600 yards. Then our back nine will start on member 11, play member 12, play member 13, and then go over and play primrose one, two combo, play primrose number eight, and go back to main 15 through 18, 35 par or 35 par with a about a 3,600 back nine. So what it does, it, it eliminates the awkward walks that we talked about between, right. uh, it's a very small walk between three green up to the new tee on five, which plays about 500 yards. So championship four is a big dog leg to the right. You remember that blind tee shot? For hole? sure. Oh, it's a beautiful tee shot. Yeah. And then uh, as we go to the, uh, on the back nine, when you play championship 10, the walk to championship 11 is a very small walk, whereas it used to be a pretty long walk and you skip that whole par three. So everything kind of works well and it matches up well from a yardage perspective. When we yeah. played uh, the rider or the 2013 amateur in the Ryder cup, you had about 3,200 yard front nine and right. you had a 3,800 yard back nine for the Ryder cup. And then we got into the amateur got to be about 42 on the back nine. So it was uh, it's a little bit uh, more in line right now and, and a lot more comfortable with the flow and it works well. And to have that par five, have a par five on the front nine now and a par five on the back nine, works well. So we're excited about the routing. It's uh, one of the members, Henry Richardson, uh, was playing around with some ideas and came up and we brought it to the USGA and it works really well. And uh, so we're, again, very excited to see Peter Jacobson has the course record from the old routing in 1988 US Open. He made seven threes to start the round of golf. If wow. you can believe wow. that. Wow. It's pretty impressive. Fluffles on the bag. 
And yeah. We have yeah. the scorecard <laughs> is still around. We've had a couple of members, uh, somebody on the Harvard golf team shot 65 from the blue tees. Wow. wow. Greg Schumann. I don't know if you ever came no, across that know. name. And, and one of our members, um, as on the main golf course, one of our members on the championship course in the mass am shot 66 Han Sherman, who's been a club champion here, played at Vanderbilt. Wow. In the uh, first round of the Mass Am uh, in 2009, which is a pretty impressive round of golf as well. For sure. For sure. So it, it's and, and kudos to uh, the member you alluded to came up with this routing, this new routing, because it's very clever um, and it works well. Um, and it, it's funny because, you know, my first reaction to skipping four or member four was cheap. What's the walk going to be back? But you hit it on the head. Again, I'm, I'm dating myself 40 years when I played what is member five, and it's a great hole. I mean, that I, we didn't go that far back, that, that tee. And so with that tee being that far back, it actually is kind of a neat, it yeah. flows well from just going from the third green. Yeah. I will say, and this is my biases, and I'm sitting here, you know, a short walk away from one of the great par fours in the world, short par fours, the 10th at Riviera, which is just a few blocks away from where we, we live here on the West side. And so I, I love short par fours and I, I always used to love two, four and six playing back then. Um, of course, those were persimmon wood days where people weren't hitting at the distances and they're such great short par fours, you know, the two with the greenway up there and, you know, the, the short wedge and, and six, of course, up on the Hill too. So, um, uh, but I recognize, you know, in this day and age, um, you know, uh, that those are those are um hard to sort of um uh, be comp- play but um uh it, it's a it's even if you're not playing the championship course the main course it's a it's a great course it's a fun course let's talk a little bit um and you you covered it but just talk a little more about um the change putting in the par three um which i think is going to be great right i mean it's that green and i'm sure you know better than i do but it's got to be not much more than 2500 square feet of that right it's pretty tiny yeah it was the small screen we had and, and one of the things that's happened recently over the last three years gil hans and his partner jim wagner we've done some tweaks to the golf course is it a full-blown restoration no but it's there's you know some tweaks here or there to try to make the golf course set up for the next 50 years we've put in some tee boxes made some modifications some fairways added some bunkers but one of the things that we've done to make our greens drain a little bit better, we've created them to be a little bit larger. And the one green in particular is the 12th hole to give us more hole locations. They actually, if you remember, Larry, that footprint of that green, there was over the bunker, there was a lot of primary rough. And then towards the yeah. back, there was some primary rough before it dropped down. So we've actually taken that green complex and have expanded it almost 50% more to oh, wow. the natural footprint. So for what okay. used to be about 2,500 square feet is a little over 4,000 square feet now. Ah, so okay. the whole locations, you're going to have more whole locations, just more undulation into that. We've been playing it now for two seasons and it really is a special green and USGA is so excited. They're going to play it from 135 max down to about 115 yards. And I got to imagine the whole locations will be front, left, front, right. And in, yeah. if you go to the back, it's always a firm green. If you get too aggressive there, you think of Phil back in 2013 at Marion when he went I, I was that whole just, I'm so I'm so great that you brought that up because yeah. I was going to bring up Marion, right? Because after Phil dunks that second shot on 10, and now you think finally he's going to do it. 
And Correct. he had those couple of miscues, including on the tiny par three, um, yeah. where you got 13. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. So, but if a whole location's in the back there and somebody tries to get too aggressive right. and it's, we get the firm conditions, they could one hop it into the penalty area. Yeah. So it's very exciting to have this back into the rotation and it gives us an opportunity to showcase that, you know, the rest of the par threes, you have the second hole is going to play 215. Right. The our championship six is going to play around 195, and then 16 is going to play in that 190 to 210. We put a new tee box in there, so to have this short par three in there uh, and downhill be fun. They're going to have some corporate hospitality to the left of it, and just going to see the green has more undulation. It kind of funnels away. It has a little Donna Ross feature to it there in the front left and the front right. And right. Um, we try to create, a, a bring back a lot of the original landforms on the green complexes. Gil and Jim have done a marvelous job with that and got rid of some of the sand dams where the water wasn't coming off. We were able to go ahead and recontour. It's really worked well. And uh, I just marvel at the, what Gil and Jim continue to do and the touches that they put. And you came out here to play. They haven't changed the golf course at all, but have made it uh, better in a sense from a playability standpoint. But you would uh, say, God, this whole looks the same. You have some longer boxes. Maybe fairways have been modified a little bit, but not a lot. You know, we made some modifications to the fairways and add some tee boxes for the amateur. But there have been some tweaking. One in 18, we've moved the fairways over to the right, about 10 to 15 yards, pushed the bunkers a little closer to the green to challenge the players, uh, the 300-plus to carry the bunkers on both sides. So. Uh, put some new tee boxes in 18 is going to play 465 from all the way back with a little oh, bit more wow. of a dog wow. leg. And so wow. you know, that whole plays a little longer, as you know, yes, it sure does put a new tee box in on three, which is going to play uh, just shy of 500 yards. Oh, wow. that whole bank of trees that used to be there to the left of three T uh, as you look down towards, uh, which will be championship four fairway. They, a lot of those trees were removed and there's a tee box down to the left of those up uh, to if you hit a drive way left on member six which would be championship five there's a tee box over there now that uh, is really neat and players will have a they can see the, the green complex a little bit better from that point and be fun uh, to see how that plays out yeah so, that, so let's talk maybe a little bit you mentioned gil hans and some of the work he's done so um and of course the year after uh, this year, where we're, the Open being at your place, it's out here um, for the first time in Los Angeles for a very long time. And um, Los Angeles Country Club, um, I know going back to David Fay, uh, a few gen uh, administrations of the USGA, they've been dying to have the US Open here in Los Angeles. And um, I mentioned LA Country Club for 2023, just because Gil Hans reworked that significantly. And he has probably become the guy, um, you know, to sort of do the restorations and, um, you know, you know, he's doing Yale, which I'm very excited about, which is a fan. I think of all the courses that are, you know, fantastic courses that really need to kind of be spruced up a little bit and brought up to speed, you know, cause Yale's gotten a little overgrown He'll, and I know he's excited about that project, but, and as you said, it wasn't a full restoration, but maybe talk a little bit about what he did. I guess it was probably before the amateur, right? I think he started in 2009. And, and I say it just because, although I haven't been on the grounds of the country club, as I say, in 40 years, I've seen some of the pictures and I see some of these vistas and I got to think that he must've done some tree removal, which of course is what a lot of folks do these days for the turf and everything, but maybe talk a little bit about what the work that Gil has done starting then. And, and as you say, tweaking it up until now. 
Yeah. So Gil uh, was brought on, I think it was 2008, uh, to do a master plan for us. And uh, the first project that the club agreed to do was to build a short game area for us. And so you think about the existing putting green that we had. It was a smaller putting green. We had a little bunker that was there. And there was yeah. a fence that lined the tent tee. And Gil came up with this great drawing where he said, hey, let's go ahead and move the tent tee a little closer to the ninth fairway and try to take that whole area where the old tent tee was, take the fence down. He couldn't stand that fence where the water fountain was. And so we doubled the size of the putting green, gave it some undulation. It was pretty flat and created a short game fairway that would have been the old walk from the tent tee down to the fairway. And it's about a 70 yard pitching area. And then the bunker green got, uh, there's three bunkers up there now and a lot bigger. And the 10th tee was just to the left of that in between the ninth fairway. So it was a great change. And so it really opened the eyes up to the members of the club. Wow, this person's very talented. We yeah. should go ahead and think about doing some other things. So he put together his master plan. So we started to chip away at it. And one of the things that Gil encouraged us to do was to get a company called Arborcom to come in. They're out of Montreal, I believe. Uh, and they come in and do shade and sun studies on your greens to see how much sun your greens are getting. And from a health standpoint, and like any old course over time, we have these beautiful majestic trees that are covering the greens. And this Arborcon study has said, Hey, you need to get four hours of sun in the morning and four hours in the afternoon. And there were some greens on our property. They were getting 45 minutes of sun a day at oh, certain wow. times of the yeah. year. So they study your sun and shade patterns throughout the year. So we had the science behind it. It wasn't somebody on the grounds committee saying, hey, we need to take down these trees. And Gil came in and did a wonderful job at one of our member nights and just talked about the importance of the sun uh, getting onto the greens and opening up. And so I don't have the exact year in place, but somewhere 2010, 2011, we started the first uh, removal of trees. And it was all for agronomic reasons, for greens and teas and had the opportunity to go ahead and remove those to give us the proper sun and air that we needed on these green complexes and tea boxes. And that was the first bit. And then we just started to chip away over time. And we started to take some trees down for some vistas, that one between three and five, to give a little bit more sun and air to the fifth fairway, which would be a soft one as you go. So, right, right. Uh, and then the club prior to the 13 amateur, we decided to go ahead and work with Gil and some of his plans to put in some tee boxes. So we, with engaging, uh, put a new tee box in on number one back just off the putting green. So that was tied in with that. There was a new tee box in on main member five that we put in to make that hole just shy of 500 yards. There was a new tee box put in on Primo's number eight, which was at that time for the amateur was played as the 12th hole. Uh, put in 625, put a new tee box in on member 15, which made that just about 500 yards. So we uh, <laughs> were able to get some more uh, playable, I should say longer par fours that played very well for the amateur golfer. And in the USAM in 2013, the golf course conditions were fantastic and the changes were put in place and only six players broke par in the metal play portion. Wow. here on our golf wow. course, which was a par 70 played just shy, but it's like 73, 75. We're not going to play it that long and played the whole member number 11 and member number 14 as par four. So it made it very challenging as we go. So 
And that's where the USGA says, wow, you know, that Saturday of that weekend, and said, we'd love to have an open here. And that's where the, the chatter, uh, the invitation came and, and to say, gosh, you know, we'd love to move forward with that. And, and that's when the discussions came about, could we have an open here uh, based on how great the golf course performed that week with the work that Gil. And then, so fast forward uh, the last three years, we've done a lot of drainage work and uh, with Gil's help and some modifications, uh, we put the new tee box in on three. We modified the fairway on one and 18, as I mentioned, uh, did some drainage work on five and did some bunker work there. And all the bunkers have been redone uh, with Billy Bunker and done a marvelous job with Gil's help and our talented team in, in house too, with David Johnson and, and Adam uh, Bennett and Andrew Uptegrove uh, were their team that worked on that over the last few years. And it's done a marvelous job, but, and we needed some drainage, as I said, and, and, and enlarging the greens uh, with Gil's and Jim's work uh, to help with drainage and the sand dams that we had. And, and we've set the property up for the next 50 years that it just needed to be taken care of. And the open obviously accelerated and you can collaborate with the USGA on the changes that we make. And uh, everybody's really excited. We've been playing this uh, championship routing for the last year and a half, and it's been very well received. Uh, we opened up the green on 12. That's the most significant impact that you would notice on the golf course, the, which will be championship number 11. We opened it up Memorial Day of 2020. And to see the uh, changes that are there, it's really spectacular that we're using the whole footprint of that green complex. Yeah, I, 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 I can just imagine that. I, I, I will tell you, I do remember playing that hole when it was less than 2,500, and I always felt yeah. like I was hitting a wedge to a pool table. But yeah. um, it was very uh, challenging. <laughs> but you had a lot of ball marks in the middle of the summer, and it was a tough to. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and, so. and oh, totally. And for, for particularly for a 72 hole tournament, you know, with four, needing four hole locations and stuff, I mean, totally, totally makes sense. I, I hadn't realized they expanded it, but totally makes sense. Um, so um, more generally, what's it been like sort of, you know, leading up to the open? And I mean, there's going to be so much work, so much preparation and you're working, uh, I guess, Paul, who, you know, does a lot of their competitive stuff, the USGA and the other folks who are there. I mean, what's that been like for you? Um, I know you had the US Amherst, so it's not like you're not familiar with dealing with the USGA, but this is the big event. Um, so what's, what's that been like um, leading, as you say, we're not that far away from it. Yeah. As you know, to run these events, it's an army of people. The USJ's had a group of people on site for about two years. And then we, the Jeff Halls of the world and um, that group will come in right. often Jason Gore and Reg Jones and people of that nature. They're coming in a lot. And obviously we're seeing more and more of them now. Um, so uh, we have executive director, Jackie Singleton is doing a great job and our chair will, uh, Fulton and his team, Stephen Pellegrino and their vice chairs have done a wonderful job. And it's, a, as you know, it's a, a large effort from a lot of people. I have a very small part in it and there to support where we can. And uh, we've uh, been the golf course, the activity level that we've had over the last year with all the changes to make. And, and there's been a lot of challenges and members have put up with a lot with a lot of the work that's been done. And, but that comes with having, as you know, uh, yeah. you we're around during the Walker cup at LACC and what's coming up yeah. there. And, uh, but the members are all bought in and they're excited. And you have a group of members that have been here for the 88 Open and 99 Ryder Cup. But there are a lot of members that haven't been here for a major championship. So as you can imagine, they're super excited. All the corporate hospitality sold out. We have 2,500 people on the wait list to volunteer. Wow. So wow. the excitement around this, the coming to the Northeast and coming to Boston, and the Red Sox are going to be in town that week. Hopefully they'll be playing by then. So uh, again, it's just a lot of excitement uh, for folks to enjoy it. And uh, we're enjoying it as 
um, you know, to be the host of a major championship is uh, something that you dream about as uh, when you get into this business. And it's something that I cherish and uh, look forward to the opportunity. So I, I, I bet. I mean, and, and, and I can say this as, you know, someone who grew up in New England. I mean, New England sports, the enthusiasm for golf and all sports, of course, Boston, one of the great sports towns, but just, I remember, you know, the crowds used to come out for the GHO and, you know, the, the great Harbor. I mean, just unbelievable, the crowds that would come out. And of course, you know, the, the crowds at the Ryder Cup in 99, I'm sure it'll be a, a tremendous event. Let me just ask you a little bit about yourself. I mean, it's such a huge job being, you know, head pro at the country club. Are you, um, do you still play much in some of the Massachusetts tournaments? Are you able to sort of keep involved in that with having such a big responsibility at the club? And what's that like? Uh, it's a great question. And I love the game. I still love to compete. I would say up until about a year ago, I, I still competed, but didn't rehearse. Uh, as you know, you need to rehearse <laughs> what you're going to perform. Right. So you'd have a good round here or there. Uh, my kids now are out of college and uh, we're, I can put a little bit more priority into golf. And so it's been really fun over the last 12 to 16 months of uh, putting more time into it. I still love the challenge and I love to learn and grow and still love to go out and compete with the guys. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm really uh, going to turn 60 next year or this year in December. Oh, wow. So I'm excited about the opportunity to continue to play. My body's in good shape, knock on wood, and keep working at uh, trying to stay flexible and still love the game. My scores haven't uh, mid thirties was the highlight of my golf career. Uh, hasn't been good <laughs> since then, but I'm starting to see some better scores now. So I still enjoy it and still try to play. I'd say I probably play in seven or eight events a year. Um, you know, in our section championship, things of that nature and take members to pro-ams and things of that. It's, it's a lot of fun and enjoy it. It's, you're never where you want to be, uh, but you have to put the time in and I've dedicated myself to put a little bit more time into it. So, and you know what, I'm seeing some results. I'm playing better just on a normal basis and even in competitive environments, I'm getting better, but uh, golf is a game. You get out of it, what you put into it. And if you're just going to go out and play and not practice, you're not going to get any better. You're going to see a few highlights, but it one that requires a lot of time and effort. And uh, I'm finding that time and effort to put into it recently. So it's been great. Obviously, if over the next four or five months won't be as much, uh, right. but <laughs> but it's uh, definitely on my mind. I think about it every day and uh, try to put my hands on the club every day at some point. So just good. That that that's so well said, and and yeah, and, and particularly, I, and 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 we're about the same age, so I know you know the flexibility. Yeah. stuff is is really important and uh you know that, that that we work on that um well this has been fantastic um i'm so looking forward to having um the u.s open back there and and seeing it um and um uh and and as i said you know having just looked through some of the pieces that have been written about the course some of the photos it looks beautiful um and um you know Folks who are just listening to this on the podcast, Brendan has as his background as we're doing this on a video is is the the famous Himalayas hole, which um, you know, I mean, boy, that's we were talking a little bit before we started, but that's now going to be number ten. Um, and you know, for the tool for those who are starting on the tenth tee. Um, that's a heck of a start. Well, Thursday and Friday be five hundred and ten <laughs> yards. Uh, plays more like five thirty and. I could just mention one other really exciting please. thing we're doing, yeah, Larry. Please, is, uh, please. We had this wonderful internship. I don't know if you've read about it. Uh, it's the Lee Eller internship to oh, wow. uh, introduce for underrepresented individuals in the game of golf. And so the club is going to go ahead and host 
uh, 25 uh, young men and women from around the country, around the world that have applied um, wow. seven day uh, opportunity, all expenses paid. And we've had over 200 applicants so far for it. And wow. we're really excited to uh, give them a firsthand information insight about uh, tournament operations, course maintenance, design, sales and marketing, media, facility operations and management. Uh, so a great opportunity for these folks and in honor of Lee uh, has just passed. And you know, right. you know what the impact he's had on the game of golf and absolutely something that the USGA is uh, all in on. And uh, we're very excited with the DEI uh, committee that we have led by a gentleman by the name of Macy Russell. They're doing a wonderful job. So uh, something you'll hear a lot about uh, throughout the week and for the listeners uh, get a chance to get an understanding of what that's all about. So. Oh, I'm really glad you mentioned it. it. Oh, absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned it. I wasn't aware of it. That's fantastic. Um, and neat, uh, very, very neat. Um, well, listen, I, I know how busy you are, and I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, spending the time chatting. I've loved it. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it's going to be a, I know, a great tournament. And it, it's, it's a tremendous club. I mean, needless to say, I mean, it's... Um, uh, you know, the history, um, the wonderful club. I mean, all the facilities, right? We didn't even talk about that. I mean, we're talking about the golf, but I mean, for folks who don't, you know, familiar with the country club, I mean, curling, I mean, down the list, right? There's a lot of, it's, it's a real country club. It's not just a golf club, right, Brendan? It's like a small <laughs> college campus. We have 16 different buildings. It's over 235 acres. It's very unique uh, what we have here. And, and again, I'm so blessed to be here each and every day and it's going to show well to the world. And I know that the folks at NBC are really excited about coming here and the story they're going to be able to tell about uh, just the club and the history and one of the five founding members of the USGA. And just think that golf was not the reason why it started. It was all about horse racing and place right. for people to come socially. And golf got introduced kind of as an afterthought 11 years after the club was established and a few members heard about the game and the board gave him $50 to go ahead and lay out six holes at that time. And, uh, and then to see where we are today is on the worldwide stage is pretty neat. So. That's actually just touching. I mean, that, that is one of the interesting parts about it is it sort of grew in stages, right? I mean, this isn't like, Correct. um, I would think like pick another one of your like Chicago golf club. I mean, that's, that's a Charles Blair McDonald design with the yeah. templates and everything. But it kind of there's no one architect, I don't think, you know, associated with the country club. It grew in chunks. And and even back then, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, if I'm remembering right, there was that oval or that track that was like the first and 18th holes. Am I remembering yeah, that right? Something exactly like that. right. And uh, that was there all the way through 1968. They put a driving range in a one and 18. You remember that little range that we had? But yes, there yes. was no range prior to that. And so that racetrack was was on the property. It was played as an integral part of the golf course wrapped around one and 18. You can still <laughs> see some signing, uh, some of the banking of the track, which is pretty neat. So. Right. Yeah. So, so a great history, um, you know, pre, even not just golf for sure, all sorts yeah. of sports stuff, but um, it will be a terrific tournament. And again, Brendan, thank you so much for your thank time you. today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great. I appreciate it.